Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With more than 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Welcome back, listeners, to part two of our interview with historian and educator Cheney McKnight, who is the Living History Coordinator at the New York Historical Society. Last week, she joined us to speak about the profession of historic interpretation and specifically her work and research into the lives of African and African-American women in the U.S. during the 18th and 19th century. And of course, these periods meant that many of these women were enslaved at the time. And today, Cheney returns to speak with us further, specifically about African diasporic dress and fashion of these periods, with a particular emphasis on the styles of head wraps women wore at this time. So many Black women in the U.S. used head wraps as a platform for personal self-expression, and the legacy of some of these bold and beautiful historic styles very much remains part of contemporary fashion today. And we are so pleased to welcome Cheney back to the show. Cheney, I'm hoping you might speak a little bit about this concept of African retention and how that plays out specifically in terms of what Black women wore in America during the 18th and 19th centuries. This is my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) Africa is probably one of the most diverse continents on the planet. There are over 3,000 ethnic groups or ethno-linguistic groups on the continent. And in West Africa alone, where the majority of Africans are coming from, there are about 1,000 ethnic groups, meaning that each group has a different way of communicating. They have different hairstyling different ways even that they're greeting one another. You could go 10 miles down the road and you'd find a completely different culture in both directions. It's so ethnically diverse. So as far as like hair, um, the way in which hair is styled could determine how old someone is. Mm. Uh, If they're married, what what is their family's profession? Are they a family member of a chief? Like these are all things that are communicated through Uh, hair, through dress, through scarification, and there's a complex language going on there. When they come to the Americas, there are a lot of things that change. One thing is that you find that these cultures are consolidated. So they're looking because one of the things that they do is they shave their heads completely and they attempt to erase any identifying markers of who these people are. A lot of times cargoes are mixed up. Uh, When I say cargoes, uh, the middle passage, they're mixed up in the holds of these ships. So even when you cry out in your language or your dialect, people don't understand you. Uh, It would have been very, it would have been very frightening. 
And so they're looking at the similarities and there are a lot of similarities uh, within ethnic groups. And those are certain things that you see um, being carried forward into America. So there are similarities as far as traditional West African religions and uh, certain hairstylings. So the base of it, you may see cornrows, uh, twist, stringing of the hair where you wrap the hair in either a string or um, either a eel skin and it straightens out the hair, stretches the hair. You see these being carried into America and you see it even today. When I first started reenacting, the worst advice people gave me was that Black women were just wearing the poor version of what white women were wearing. That is the absolute worst advice. They had a very specific, distinctive style, and you see this in the descriptions, uh, the way in which they match, in which they match their clothing and patterns as well as colors. It's a very distinctive West African feel to it. And even to this day, amongst African-Americans, we have a very distinctive echo of West Africa within our style. And it would have been very prevalent in 18th and 19th century clothing. And I find that um, really exciting, really teasing out those very distinctive differences, as well as, of course, head wraps are also uh, something that comes from West Africa. Yeah. And, and you have noted um, the importance of style regionality in many of your videos, and you've kind of touched on it here and what we've been talking about today. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that regionality played out in terms of not only hairstyles, but head wraps in particular? So again, looking at certain ethnic groups, we have the Igbo, the Yoruba, the Khan, the Mandinka, uh, the Wolof, the Fulani. All of them have these very distinctive hairstyles that communicate many different things. And I find that in the 18th century, this is very unique, but I don't find that enslavers uh, really attempted to change a lot about hairstyling in the 18th century. Now, this changed with people who were working within the house or in view of guests but people who are working in certain areas, I find that um, they had a very much, uh, I don't see it, so I don't care about it, view to it. I found that head wraps changed just as much as hairstyles changed in the 18th century. And this is something that's very maddening to me because whereas um, when we look at European hairstyles in the 18th century, we have such a pool, a large pool of portraits from wealthy European women to look at. We can see the changes in fashion from one month to three months down the calendar year. And you can see these in real time, whereas with head wraps, I know for a fact that these styles change drastically from region to region, as well as time period to time period, but we just don't have 
as big of a sampling size as we need to. So that's something that I'm working on now, collecting as many samples as possible so that we can kind of figure this out. I'm really excited because New Orleans is the place where we've been able to get a lot of portraits from the early to mid 19th century. Um, But that's just such a distinctive period. Also, I find that people are obsessed with New Orleans. And I just prefer to spend more time on other regions where when it comes to head wraps, because we have so many scholars already working on New Orleans, and there's a hyper focus on New Orleans. So I prefer to look at places like Boston, or uh, because there were Black people in Boston. There were Black people in Virginia, obviously. What were these women's head wraps looking like? They absolutely had head wraps because we have descriptions of them. Tennessee, uh, Georgia, North Carolina, all the way up into Connecticut, uh, Maryland. What do these head wraps look like? So that's my ongoing project. So if you come across interesting images of enslaved and free Black women in America in the 18th and 19th century, please uh, send it on over to Not Your Mama's History. That's right. That's, that's a call for you, listeners. And also, it's important to understand that head wraps are also a racial identifier. Yeah. Um, This begs the question, which we haven't really gotten into yet, but it is an obvious question. How did enslaved persons obtain their clothing during these time periods? Oh, that's that's a really good question. So there are so many ways in which they obtain clothing. I always thought that, well, before I started doing the research, I assumed that it was just through allotments. And we do see they are getting allotments from their enslavers. But we also see that clothing is actually um, the basis for the internal slave economy. So what's going on in quarter sites and within on the back staircases and urban environments during slavery is this underground market of clothing, of used clothing, trading. And when we were talking about earlier, when enslaved people are running away, the thing that they're grabbing are clothes because that is ready money. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can trade that anywhere and everywhere. Um, And a lot of times you'll see that they may steal clothing. And that's like, again, a very smart thing to grab some, a good piece of clothing that you know that you can sell along the way or trade for something else. They're also purchasing a lot of clothing as well. So we know from the ledgers of these stores and um, from merchants that they are purchasing fabric uh, notions. Uh, They're also sometimes purchasing ready-made clothing as well. So are their enslavers. And also they are getting clothing as gifts as well. Sometimes they're hand-me-downs from their enslavers and their families. Um, Also, 
Sometimes they're getting it as a gift for possibly giving birth to healthy children. As I always say, imagine in exchange for birthing a child into enslavement, you receive a calico dress. It's like chilling. Yes. Uh, Sometimes when I stop and just think about these things, it's just so, it hits me so hard. You mentioned that they were purchasing clothing. Where were they getting the money or the currency to actually purchase their own clothing? Would you tell us a little bit about that? This is also a case-by-case situation. So some enslaved persons had permission from their enslaver to have a side hustle or a side business. We know in places like Virginia, Chickens were the, if you were going to buy a chicken, most likely you're purchasing it from an enslaved person. Uh, Some enslaved people are given pieces of land where they can grow food and then sell that food at market. And then some are said completely don't get permission and they decide to do it behind their enslavers back which we do see some of those conflicts arise in journals and narratives. Mm. Um, They're also selling their clothes, uh, sometimes uh, coming up with very ingenious ways of making money. And then sometimes they're renting out themselves, their, their own labor. Most of the time when an enslaved person is quote unquote rented out, they are, the money goes to their enslaver. But in a few cases, you see that money go, a portion of that money going to the enslaved person. This brings me to the question of the dress of enslaved persons, particularly women, versus the dress of free women at this time. And in a couple of your videos, you touch on this and, and you note that there are very specific sartorial markers that are marking the difference between free and enslaved women of color. What are those? And and where are you finding that information? So um, I find that there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences between free women and enslaved women. The similarities really ends up because most of these women who are free are still associated very closely with people who are enslaved because those are their family members, those are their friends, that's their community. Um, The change comes in when they change social status. So maybe when they are free, they may have been a skilled blacksmith, but after they're free, their money is going directly into their pocket and that changes Um, where they are in their social standing. So you see that um, finer clothing, a lot of times you'll see a nicer head wrap or wearing more European hairstyles. Mm. But this also is a pitfall as well because there were a lot of enslaved women who were also dressed very well. I mean, just pick up an 18th century runaway ad yeah. These women are wearing silk bonnets. Kid gloves. <laughs> yes. Uh, printed cotton gowns, like ridiculous 
ridiculously expensive things and you're like, wow. So I would say that you could, maybe if you looked at a, a painting like uh, Henry Latrobe, uh, overseer doing his duty, you see that those two enslaved women who are working at digging up those stumps or clearing the land. Now those are, that is clothing that is typical of an enslaved person. So when you look at some runaway ads, you see clothing typical of the Negro or something along those lines. And then you'll know that that fabric is a Negro cloth or like a Osnaberg, Osnabrig, uh, or even a Lindsay Woolsey. Also, you'll notice their hair is sheared. A lot of times enslaved women who are working in fields, you'll see that they their hair has been completely shorn. I want to touch back on that topic of head wraps. And did these function as a platform of self-expression for women? Almost in... I guess what I'm trying to get at is you were saying that they changed and they changed quickly. Were these functioning as an item of fashion almost? Absolutely. I think when we look at clothing of people that pass, we don't so much see it as fashion unless it is the really wealthy people. Um, but absolutely, women and men of all social standing want it to look good. And they wanted to look in season. <laughs> and uh, this is something that has a long history in the African and African-American community through the African diaspora. There's something about fashion and really looking good. And I think that this is something, no matter you're free at, or enslaved, these women were trying to get the best fabric that they could get their hands on because head wraps were one of the only ways in which they could express themselves. This was something that you don't need a lot of fabric to get a really nice head wrap going. So you could have maybe a yard of a silk fabric and you are looking fly. Yeah. <laughs> you look good <laughs> and you feel good. You feel good for those moments. Yeah, it's, it's all about keeping up with that latest silhouette and the way to tie it. Exactly. And I, I really like, look, especially in the mid-19th century, you can see certain plantations, their head wraps are very distinctive within that group. So that really speaks to the fact that if you look at a group of women and their head wraps are all similar, but then you look at another picture of enslaved women on a completely different plantation and their head wraps are not similar to the first one, you're seeing regional differences. Mm -hmm. It's so exciting when you see these things because that's their personality shining through. That's also their, their group and familial fashion coming through as well. And it all ties back to what you were talking about before, about that concept of African retention, and it all directly linking back to specific identity within a group. Absolutely. And um, I think that's something that they held strong onto. This is a form of resistance. I am keeping my African identity 
you can take away my clothes, you can cut off my hair, you can separate me from my family, uh, you can take away my spices. <laughs> but I am, I'm going to make a way out of no way and show you who I am and where I'm from. Yeah. This is something that's just so beautiful. Even now, you see that coming through in African-American culture. Yeah. One thing that blew my mind when I started working on this episode, I hadn't, I, as a fashion historian, I'm like, how have I never heard of the Tignon Law, <laughs> which has to do with a, a very specific type of head wrap. Would you tell us what a Tignon is and what was the Tignon Law? Okay, so this has gotten so complicated because it's been the subject of so much conversation, but also a lot of mystery. So the, a tignon is actually a regional term for a head wrap. So when you think of a tignon, we always think of like the more elaborate head wraps. So really, whichever, whatever head wrap you had on your head in that region, most likely they would have called it a tignon. But now we think of the women who have the like beautiful cascading head wraps that we all love. Now, um, we're specifically talking about Louisiana. And I think this was 1786. I, I think I got my date right. Governor Esteban Rodriguez Miro passed a law that we now call the Tignon Laws. But he, he passed a lot, uh, a group a grouping of laws all at once. We now call them black codes. And within this, he passed a law governing specifically free women of color and what they are allowed to wear and what they weren't allowed to wear. So I'm gonna go through what this law mandated. The hair should be bound in a kerchief. The woman should refrain from excessive attention addressed. She should be banned from wearing plumes or jewelry. And this law really had to do with the free Black population and these ideas of Black women's relationships with white men. I think that a lot is put on those relationships. Yes, I do think that this law had to do with a little bit with those relationships, but I think it's more so in putting these women in their place or where they perceive their place was. And that is, they thought, they believe that Black women should, free Black women should be on the same standing as enslaved women. And so by walking through the street with their beautifully curly hair, which I would say my texture hair is perfect for 18th century hairstyles. Like it just, you don't need as much products. Your hair really wants to go into these very elaborate forms. And so I think it has a lot to do with that. I think it also has to do a lot with class and how dare you attempt to raise yourself up visually above women who are far above your station. And a lot during the 18th century has to do with station and where you are. Where you were born into is where you were expected to leave this, uh, leave the earth in. So 
the law was meant to put free black women in their place, which is at the same level of enslaved women. And that's not what happened. That is not at all what happened because these women were like, oh no, (laughs) I'm going to let my light shine. And they went out, got some beautiful head wraps, had some very luscious fabrics. And yes, they did indeed put plumes on the top of those head wraps, uh, put jewels in them. um, And it really had kind of the opposite effect. (laughs) Um, what was supposed to diminish their beauty. In fact, they they turned what was a negative into a huge positive. And we love that. Fashion as resistance. We talk about it all the time on the show. Cheney, correct me if I'm wrong, but Louisiana was not the only state that had a law similar to this. I think South Carolina perhaps had some laws about this as well. Absolutely. So uh, in 1732, there was a law passed about uh, clothing and head wraps. Um, There was an amendment about the 1740s. You don't see a lot of laws specifically governing the clothing of enslaved people for a lot of reasons. Mainly, it was considered to be the realm of the enslaver to govern what their enslaved was wearing. And uh, they felt as if it was an overreach of the government into what was supposed to be their rights. Um, Also, the punishment reward system of slavery was very important specifically in the United States, um, in the North American colonies, because whereas in the Caribbean, the Sugar Islands, as well as uh, South America, they controlled these people with sheer force and sheer brutality. I find that North American slavery was very sinister and that it was very, it had a lot of mental and psychological controls. You see a lot of instances of utilizing of your family, right? which I think is very sinister. Uh, and so they had very psychological uh, controls in place. And one of them was clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said before, uh, you see rewards and as far as clothing, when someone does something like has a, a healthy child or uh, if someone snitches on someone or if um, someone does something extraordinary, clothing is a way of, was a form of control. The taking away of clothing and the giving of clothing as well. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot of, of rules on the books where basically... Enslaved people must be clothed. And even that law seemed to be a hard one for the enslavers to follow. Um, Because uh, we see accounts in big cities like New York, as well as Williamsburg, Virginia, where there are ladies, upper class ladies who are uh, Virginia gentry walking around the street and actually looking at half-naked enslaved men and not even batting an eyelash 
that means that you're used to seeing that. So obviously they weren't following these laws, but that seemed to be the most important law as far as clothing. Um, Enslaved people must be clothed. It also depends on where people are working. And I, again, I think it, it's just a form of control that they really enjoyed. Yeah. Well, and also to uh, control and also currency, as you, as you mentioned before, clothes as like a monetary form of exchange and power exchange. You know, power is money, money is power. It's always wrapped up in there together. <laughs> Speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there were specific laws about how women were to where or or maybe women combated those laws in New Orleans or these Tignon laws. And I think that if we fast forward today, there is a direct correlation in conversations that we still see happening when it comes to how Black Americans can, quote unquote, can and cannot wear their hair. Um, would, would you say that, that that legacy pulls through? I would absolutely say uh, it really pulls through um, from the 17th century and 18th century, where hair is seen as a reflection on what's on the inside. So if your tresses are smooth and uh, even has very uniform curls, um, obviously on the inside, you're a very calm and smooth and uniform person. Now, if your hair is kinky and has many different textures going on, and it's what they consider to be wild, it reflects, they believe that on the inside, you were wild, you were unkempt, your thoughts are not ordered, you are not an ordered person. Now, I found it I find it very interesting, the similarities between how people viewed hair texture 200, 300, 400 years ago, and how people in the year 2020 of our Lord <laughs> are still viewing the same, having the same thoughts about African hair. Yeah. Now, I would say modern companies who say that certain African and African-American hairstyles are unprofessional are making a statement about what they think these hairstyles say about the essence of a person. Just like how people 250 years ago thought hair texture was a reflection on what's on the inside. They say that it looks unkempt, wild, and unprofessional, and therefore, you are wild, unkempt, and unprofessional. Huh. Interesting. Sound familiar? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's been there's been uh, specific uh, legal battles and court cases still playing out today as we speak, as we are recording this on this very specific topic. This dialogue hasn't really changed in the course of 250 years. Absolutely shocking. I think as a uh, historian, the one thing that I can guarantee is that we're going to repeat history again, which is so frustrating because I feel that in history, 
we have a roadmap of how not to mess up again. <laughs> but we always, we always do it anyway. It's like uh, my friend uh, Abby always says, it's like Groundhog's Day over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yep. Technology changes, the way things look may change, but those themes stay consistent, it seems like. Absolutely. Janie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the incredible work that you are doing right now. And is there anything that we didn't talk about that that you kind of just wanted to throw in before we wrap up today? Um, I just want to encourage everyone to go out and learn Uh, Please start with the voices of enslaved people. Start with the WPA narratives. They're 100% free. Go on the Library of Congress website. They are, and they also explain how you can move through them. So um, there's just so many and you can hear it directly from their lips. And if people want to learn more about you and your work, where can people find you? Okay, I am on Instagram, not your mama's history, and mama spelt M-O-M-M-A-S. So not your mama's history. And then also you can go to notyourmamashistory.com. I'm on YouTube, not your mama's history, as well as Facebook. But um, I do, as you know, I do a lot on Instagram as well as YouTube. So those are the best places to find me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Cheney, thank you so much for joining us. For any of our listeners wanting to learn more details about the specific styles of head wraps Cheney referenced, we highly encourage you to head over to her YouTube channel, which is called Not Your Mama's History, where she has a selection of several different videos, actually, that detail, you know, these exact styles, how to tie them, as well as little additional bits about their history. And I just want to say, Cass, that I think it really speaks volumes that, as I mentioned earlier, that I had not heard of the Tignon Law before I started working on this episode. You know, African-American dress history was not something that was detailed in our formal education as fashion historians. And once I started looking into this Tignon Law, I realized that there is a lot of scholarly work that has been done on this and other laws like it. You know, so the research is out there, but as students many years ago, we were not necessarily pointed towards these resources. No one was shining a light on them at the time. Yeah, and that's really but one of the many reasons why it's important for not only us on dress, but also educators to, you know, really work to quote unquote decolonize the classroom. So working harder to bring in different voices and narratives that flesh out the history of dress beyond that white Eurocentric, um, you know, narrative that fashion studies has long been structured around and has long been the center of our field. And this has been something we've really endeavored to do with our platform on dress really since the first day. And we remain in light of current events even more committed to this today. So stay tuned for many fabulous episodes coming up. And for any of our listeners who might want to get a jump start thinking about the history of dress in its global totality, we do have a book recommendation for you. And we actually have mentioned this book on the show before, but again, we highly suggest that you check out Fashion History, A Global View which is by Linda Welters and Abby Lilithan. And it came out in 2018. And it's it's actually pretty affordable too. 
Yeah, I think it's like $20 on Amazon and even cheaper if you get the Kindle download, which is actually how I enjoyed it. And for any of you out there who may be suspicious or dubious about Kindle books for like scholarly pursuits, um, I've been using it quite a lot, the Kindle app recently, because um, it does actually allow you to highlight and bookmark things. And I'm one of those people that full-on takes like a highlighter to my books and highlights the hello out of things. So um, the Kindle app is very handy um, because also your reading is always with you in your phone. So um, I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the living history that resides in your closet next time you get dressed. Please join us this Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer listener questions and or keep you up to date on the latest things going on in the realm of fashion and fashion studies. And if you have a question you'd like to submit for a future fashion history mystery, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where we always post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.